major event in the history of redemption. If you look at those, those events, there was the first coming of Christ, his baptism at the River Jordan, which is often overlooked. It's a crucial, crucial event, Jesus being anointed as Messiah for his work of ministry. Of course, his ministry itself, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. That sort of completes that transition era from old to new, from an old covenant to a new covenant. We now live in those new covenant realities, and that's what Acts 2 is about. It's that explaining that transition. We looked at the event. We looked at Joel 2. Spent some time there, sort of smelling the roses, as it were, because it's just such an important passage, and it's really important for everyone, just uh, for your own understanding, for being able to read the Bible, uh, I don't know, more peaceably, uh, to understand that a lot of things in the Bible, there might be some different words, but they're basically all laying out this structure. Peter, in answer and in response to the people that were saying, ah, these people with the Holy Spirit, they're just drunk, says, no, 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 you have to understand this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And Joel, back in somewhere between 800 and 500 B.C., talked about last days. And that last days is an era. It's not an event. It's an era, an era of time. And Joel, in Joel, God says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and so forth. And so we know that these last days begin with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then the prophecy in Joel just almost dramatically shifts into apocalyptic language of heavens and earth and moon darkened and there's blood and fire and and all these apocalyptic terms that show that there's a definite conclusion to these last days and in Joel itself and other places it's the day of the Lord. As we looked at how Jesus takes that language to introduce his actual second coming, he appropriates that language as I guess that term floats around in social justice circles. But Jesus properly appropriates the language of apocalyptic, as it were, and he applies it to his actual second coming, his bodily second coming, his physical appearing, which will one day happen. And we just showed in Matthew 24 and 25 that this brings the day of judgment. But in between this coming of the Holy Spirit and this final day of judgment, Joel says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's really what's important to our purpose because Matthew 24, 14 clearly shows that The great work of the church, the great mission of the church is to bring the gospel to all nations, to disciple the nations, if we use the terminology of Matthew. And that happens in between the beginning and the end of the last days. And so this is the framework for discipleship. So we have these last days. I hope the little pictures mean something to you there. Don't forget there is a last day. When you're talking about last days, there's a last day. And that last day is that day of judgment, that day of resurrection. A number of things happen on that last day. 
It's probably where all the differences of opinion really lie about the second coming of Christ. And so just uh, stamp this picture in your head. It's just taken out of Joel and Jesus and trying to just put it into some kind of visual. Well, this morning we're going to move forward and continue in this outline of Acts chapter 2. And by the way, Acts chapter 2 is one of the most crucial chapters in the New Testament. It's just amazing how you're brought from the Old Testament into the New. You're brought from Jesus' first coming to Jesus being raised from the dead, dying on a cross, raised from the dead, and ruling and reigning from God's right hand. Just an amazing chapter. But Peter moves on from Joel to what I've just called an indictment. Peter is going to bring before the people the fact of Jesus' being on earth, being manifested as the Son of God through his miracles, and that they killed him. For all the good that he did, they killed him. Some of you maybe need to remember that when you feel like that no good deed is going unpunished in your life. That's pretty much how Jesus could have felt, except for the fact that he trusted God and knew that it was his mission and that under these things were called. So we come to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And... Here we have just sort of an outline of Jesus' ministry. Uh, The next verse 23, we'll have the crucifixion of Jesus. From there, Peter moves to the resurrection and finally to the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to camp here on verse 22. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne. And it is a throne of First of all, your kingship. You are the great God who made heaven and earth, and we must never forget that. We can never forget that. We don't ever want to forget that. We always want to recognize that you have created all things. That this whole universe exists, and we exist, and everything in it exists for your good pleasure. Lord, we just come this morning in our hearts, we just want to bow before you and praise your great name. And just be utterly amazed that you are not only our God, you are our Father. And you chose this relationship with us. Lord, if you had left us to ourselves, we would have just gone the way of the rest of the world until finally one day you would come back or we would die and recognize immediately the shock that you are the true and the living God and we traded you for the world. Lord, we thank you that we are your children. We're all your children here this morning. Lord, we ask, we come before your throne and we just ask for your Holy Spirit. We're going to talk this morning about your son, whom you have approved. Your son who did mighty works. Lord, just pray that you would fill our hearts with that. Lord, we would have just a fresh sense 
that Jesus Christ is your beloved son. And our sonship is bound up in his sonship. Lord, we just pray for your blessing this morning. All we can do is ask. Uh, we're, uh, Lord, we're needy. We're helpless in ourselves. We can't conjure up the Holy Spirit. I can't conjure up the Holy Spirit. I can't put the Holy Spirit in anybody's heart. Can't even put it in mine. Only you can. And Lord, just pray that you would do that this morning for us. And we would all together just rejoice as we go through your word and you make it real and powerful and the words of life to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we look at this verse. This verse sort of has its own little inherent outline. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. It's a call to listen soberly. Whenever we are dealing with the things of God, it's good to be sober-minded. It's good to be joyful. It's good to have confidence in the Lord. It's good to be, I don't know, just interested in the things of God. It's good to be curious. It's good to want to know things. But at the same time, it's good to be sober. Sober doesn't mean somber. It just means sober. We're not all over the map. We're not thinking about silly things or doing silly things. Men of Israel, hear these words. Then Peter introduces Jesus of Nazareth again. He's bringing it up, this, this fellow that had been on a cross just 50 days before. And Peter is wanting to establish the historical identity of Jesus, because from here forward, everything is going to be about him. Whether it's his dying on a cross, whether it's rising from the dead, whether he's inheriting uh, and fulfilling the, the Davidic covenant, whether he's fulfilling Psalm 110, whether he's fulfilling Psalm 16, whether he's at the right hand of God, whether he's pouring out this Holy Spirit that everybody just, just experienced or saw. It's Jesus of Nazareth. I want to be sure about his identity. And Peter says, He's a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Peter wants everybody to understand, wants us to understand, anybody who's listening to understand, that Jesus Christ did not come on his own terms. He didn't come for himself. He came as one representing God as Father and everything he did was for his Father. And God the Father attested him, approved him. And there's this divine witness to the sonship of Jesus, to the truth of his words, and to the power of the grace that comes through him. And then this particular verse ends or concludes with, this was done in your midst as you yourselves know. Peter's making an appeal to people's conscience. You guys know these things. You need to live up to them. Now this passage, there's a very similar passage in Acts chapter 10. As you go through Acts, Peter in four different places 
sort of makes a similar statement that we read in Acts 2. Not nearly as long, um, but Acts chapter 10, verse 36 through 39, actually really is just sort of a little almost expanded version of Acts 2.22 that we just looked at. As we start to consider this, remember this is Acts 10 where you've had in the first opening verses of Acts 10, starts with a fellow named Cornelius, a centurion, a Gentile, and he has a vision from God. God says, you go get Peter, bring him here, he's got a message for you. Some of us might be thinking, gosh, Lord, why didn't you just tell him right then and there? You know, why all the bother with Peter, dragging him across the, you know, the hot... uh, uh, hot Palestine. Why do all that? Why dragging him up to Caesarea? Because God is not ordained to have angels preach the gospel. He's ordained to have human beings preach the gospel. Well, right after or during when Cornelius is getting this vision that he's supposed to be talking to Peter, Peter's getting the vision that he's supposed to be talking to a Gentile. Some of us are familiar with that. That was, a, that was a hard word for Peter, who all his life had understood that you don't mess with the Gentiles. The Gentiles are off limits because the Gentiles are, well, they don't have the promises of God, at least in the Israelite mind. Then you have a rehearsal of the trip, how they came and got Peter and brought him back to Caesarea, and then you end here with this part of at least this message that Peter presents to Cornelius and those of his household. And they're sort of dropping in a little bit in the middle because the rest of it doesn't fit on the page. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Is that not a call to listen soberly? Pay attention? I mean... We're not talking about the weather. We're not talking about, you know, what's going on with uh, the politicians. We're not talking about the scores of a football game. We're talking about the word of God that he sent to the sons of Israel, bringing peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. That's the theme. That's the message. Listen soberly. Peter here also again, he wants to establish the identity of Jesus. You know Jesus of Nazareth. This is who we're talking about. It's not just any old Jesus. There's other people with that name in Israel. This is Jesus of Nazareth, a particular person who has a historical identity. And then there's this historical reliability that sort of goes along with that. The thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism, which John proclaimed. This has a historical setting. It's definitive. These are not cunningly devised fables, as many would say today. This is reliable history. And at the end, he said, we are witnesses of these things, which in that day... Eyewitness testimony, that was just sort of, uh, that was a legal entry in a court of law. We are witnesses of all these things that he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
And this theme is how God anointed Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him. The divine witness. And then the appeal to conscience places it at the beginning. These are the things that you yourself know. This was known. This was not invented. This was known. It was historical reality. So we come back to our passage in Acts chapter 2. This just that Acts 10 has always intrigued me how there's that parallel. So Peter starts out, men of Israel, hear these words. He had already said this before, up in verse 14. But here, he just engages his audience again. He had talked about the prophet Joel. But he wants his audience again to be engaged. Peter has a sober message of the utmost importance, and he begins here, but it's going to get more and more significant as he goes through his message. And Peter wants to be personally engaged with his audience. Peter isn't worried about his oratory. Peter isn't worried about people are going to think of him after the message. Just men of Israel, hear these words. This earnest, genuine appeal. Now, some of us go door to door. I'd say some of you, I don't for a number of reasons. Some of those reasons will go away soon, I hope. But as you go door to door, this is one of the things you got to know. You got to be personally engaged. You're going to meet someone cold turkey. And you got just, you know, really, what, 30 seconds. They're going to say, yes, I'll talk or no. And you have to personally engage them. Engage them with something that will be of significance to them. We all have to have the sense that everyone matters. I remember one time I was reading through First Chronicles, the nine chapters of the so-and-so was of the household of so-and-so and beget so-and-so. And at the end of it, I was truly just thinking, oh gosh, Lord, why is this in here? It's just, just some of us maybe can't sleep. We get, to, we get to read this and it's work our way through it. <clears throat> and it just struck me that there's all these names in there. Names that I don't know, names that you don't know, names that seem almost irrelevant to us, but they're there, and why are they all there? Because everybody matters. Everybody matters. Men of Israel, hear these words. Gentlemen at the door, lady at the door, young person at the door, hear these words. You matter. The sincere appeal of the gospel. Now, I'm not sure how many people were gathered here to hear this or, you know, how, how, who was in the last rows and couldn't get, catch things like, what did he say, what did he say? I don't know. But I do know that at the end of this message and the things that ensued by the end of the day, there were around 3,000 people who had become Christians 
and we're calling on the name of the Lord. The sincerity of Peter's opening words, men of Israel, hear this. This is so important to who you are. This is so important to your future. This is so important to your identity. This is so important to your, your eternity. Hear these words. And then he identifies Jesus of Nazareth. Literally, Jesus the Nazarene. Of course, he's an historic person. And everybody was pretty much aware. Peter could say, here's Jesus of Nazareth, and people had pretty much somewhere, somehow heard of him. Some may have been participants in his death. Some of may be looking back, gulping, going, oops, I was one yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. And now Peter's bringing this guy up again. What's, what gives? Jesus was a known figure throughout Galilee and Samaria and Judea. He spent time in these places, some of those places a lot of time, visited often to Jerusalem. His whole ministry for a long time was centered in Galilee. He had gone through Samaria, gone through Perea, both sides of the Jordan. And over several years of Jesus' ministry, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of speculation. Remember in Matthew 15, 16, people are asking, you know, who is, who is this? Who is this? Is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is this Elijah raised from the dead? A lot of concern and speculation and gossip. Unfortunately, gossip, again, my brothers and sisters, when you get gossiped about, it's going to happen. It's going to happen here. We're all pack of sinners. We all end up going, ah, I shouldn't have done that. That was not my business. It wasn't my issue to try to assess or judge. Think of your Jesus. Gossip, for which there was absolutely zero basis. There might be a good basis to gossip about me, although I still recommend you don't do it for your own sake. Quinn will give you a lot of material, I'm sure. But not Jesus. So when you feel the sting of that gossip, and you will, you live in a fallen world, you live with a pack of redeemed sinners, just don't take it to heart. Now, there's a passage in Matthew that's a bit ambiguous. It says that in the end, this was fulfilled. Jesus went and dwelt in Nazareth, and this was fulfilled, that he might be called a Nazarene. And, of course, for 2,000 years, Christian scholars have been puzzling over that because there's no apparent passage in the Old Testament that just says Jesus is going to be a Nazarene. So they have some speculation in an attempt to try to give some significance to it. It's, you know, well-intentioned, well-meaning speculation and really necessary speculation. But while it may be ambiguous as to what passage is coming through or what group of passages or what theme perhaps in the Old Testament is there, it is clear about his designation. He was from Nazareth. He went to Nazareth. And that's where he dwelt. That's where he grew up. 
Now we live in a day when the historicity of Jesus is challenged everywhere. Questions kind of float around in people's minds. Did Jesus even exist? And those questions have been put there by radical scholars and movies like Da Vinci Code and things like that. And so in the popular mind, there's this question, was, you know, was Jesus really even a real historical person, a historical figure? I think it's interesting that the radical scholars have since revised their opinion and they all say he's a historical figure, but they unleashed this idea that he wasn't. And so while the, the radical scholars will say, no, no, he was a historical figure, even they have to deal with what they created on the internet. Everybody out there just making all these statements. And you're probably gonna encounter this in witnessing. It's one thing to encounter it on the internet where you go, oh, okay, you know, did Jesus exist? And by the way, Christians of any maturity, any, you know, however long you've been, I've been a Christian, you know, 50, 51 years now almost. And sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and these questions will hit me and I'll go, oh, did Jesus exist? It's just Satan with his fiery darts. He's, he's still going to be shooting, shooting them at you. Doesn't matter how long you've been around. So it's good to have some, maybe, I don't know, ammo in your, in your belt on this topic, even just for yourself, but if you're going door to door or you're out mixing it up with people, you're one sooner or later going to encounter this. Someone's going to say, well, there's, we're not even sure Jesus existed. So it might be good for you to consider this objection. You might be good for you at some point in you know, the next few weeks or whenever you have time to say, okay, how would I answer if someone came up to me and cold turkey just said, Jesus doesn't exist, how would I answer that? To where I don't sound like, well, I just believe he did, because that kind of doesn't work. We have historical material. So I would encourage you to uh, perhaps get some YouTubes or books by fellows like Sean McDowell. J. Warner Wallace, Frank Turek. They have helpful books and YouTubes. But you need to consider this. And when you start looking at the evidence, which you don't have to remember the evidence, but it's always good to have confidence to say to someone, look, Jesus is the most historically verified figure in ancient history. You don't have to be able to quote, you know, the Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus or Tacitus's Annals, you know, section this or that. You don't have to be able to do that. But you have to at least know it's there. Have read it with your eyeballs and you can, with your own confidence, say, there is a historical Jesus. He existed in history. And there's evidence for him that is abundant and there's no real reason, no historical reason to deny the historicity of Jesus. It would be good to encounter that, to be able to say that. Young folks, you're starting to grow up into the world. You, some of you probably itching to get out there and have the freedom of an adult, <clears throat> free to pay all your own bills. Um, Free to get a job and work, 8, 10, 12 hours a day. 
free for all those adult, free to do all those adult pressures. But it's good to want to grow up. If you don't want to grow up, if you don't want to become your own person and become an adult, then there's something going on that you maybe need to fix. That big old world may feel like it's scary to some. It's not. By the time you get there, you'll be ready. Parents here are trying to make you, make you ready. But it's important for you. One day you are going to go out into that world on your own. You'll be standing on your own two feet. And you're going to have to have an answer to this question. Is the historical Jesus a real person? And you need to have your own answer that you're ready to stand for because you're going to get challenged. Some of the material that you would answer is like, okay, here's the Gospel of Matthew and here's the Gospel of John. Sure, they're biased, everybody is, but just because a historian is biased because they have this or that doesn't mean they're doing things inaccurately. Just because Matthew loves Jesus Christ doesn't mean he's giving you a bogus narrative or that he's fudging things. The men who wrote the New Testament are very clear. Truth is everything. Facts are everything. The reliability of what they say is everything. Now, in a world where that's being pretty much thrown out the window, we might say, ah, who can you trust now? Well, there wasn't AI in the first century, so you know it didn't come, AI didn't come up with this. These were men, honest men, good men, men who were concerned about truth and righteousness and reality. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. The thing that they wrote were not things they dreamed up. They weren't secondhand things. They were eyewitnesses. Luke, should you ever look at who he is as a historian, he was a first-rate historian. The Gospel of Luke is written by a first-rate historian. And he sourced his material directly from eyewitnesses. No game of telephone. Nothing sort of passed on from one person to the next to the next until finally Luke picked it up third or fourth hand and made the best of what he could of it. No, Luke interviewed eyewitnesses. Mark spent a lot of time with Peter when Peter was in Rome and heard him present the gospel over and over and over and present the stories of Jesus and the narratives of Jesus over and over and over And Mark wrote it down. Wrote down everything he heard from the Apostle Peter. Again, eyewitness testimony written by another. Luke is a first-rate historian and Mark is a first-rate journalist. You can look at ancient historians who talk about Jesus or Crestus the Christ in the annals of Tacitus or Josephus, the Jewish antiquities, and there may be a passage or two that's questionable in Josephus, but the rest of them are not. Jesus is attested in history. Archaeology, 
archaeology which can't make up. We have all of the, a lot of people and places and customs of the Gospels have been dug up in recent years, recent decades. The Gospels are historical. The Gospels are reliable. So if you encounter someone or you get one of those fiery darts from the evil one, here's what you can trust with confidence. That this New Testament is a reliable witness to Jesus Christ. Peter goes on, a man attested to you by God. Now the word attested is probably, it's, it's uh, the New American Standard. I don't know, it's not a word that, I don't know, I would, I would think is really at everybody's fingertips. I would prefer other words personally. But attested, it's actually a good word. And it means to be proven, a man who is proven to you by God. It means to corroborate, a man who is corroborated to you by God. It means affirmed, a man who is affirmed to you by God. It means verified and certified. Jesus was the real deal. And he had God's stamp of approval. Attested to you by God. God took the time and established the means by which he could verify his son in history and he could be distinguished from all of the frauds, all of the confused people, all of the wannabes that are out there. And there's lots of them, even to this day. He's attested by God. Now the Greek has an added sense of public display, exhibition, exhibited. Jesus wasn't just attested in a corner, he was attested publicly and openly. The gospel is not a secret, it wasn't done in a corner, as some will mention. Now the initial witness of God for Jesus, in terms of this public attestation, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist came and his whole point was to introduce and make way for the Messiah. And it's in my mind, so I may have talked about it before, but I don't know, it's just, I saw a movie and it was a movie back in the, I don't know, 1100s, something like that, in England. And there's this town and everybody's just in the town, kind of daily business, chatting away, slacking here, chattering there, sweeping a porch, doing something. And the town looked like what a town might look like when people were busy and things being done. It wasn't all neat and tidy. And then all of a sudden, someone announces there's, there's someone coming down the road. And this troop of soldiers headed up by this, I don't know, captain or something, comes into the town and announces and says, the king is coming. And guess what everybody did? They're like, oops. Everybody went and cleaned the whole town up in about 20 minutes. They had everything in order. Getting their act together, the king is coming. And that was John the Baptist. 
The King Jesus is coming. One who's coming after me who's mightier than I am. Repent. Get your life together. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and in fire. Kind of an Acts 2 thing, right? So God is attesting Jesus. He's showing to the nation of Israel that Jesus is who he's going to say he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And he starts that attestation with John the Baptist. In the Gospel of John, he records additional material about John the Baptist. Keep the Johns straight here. And we have recorded what John said at another time in another space. I did not recognize him, Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize him in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. The attestation of God for Jesus. John didn't know what he looked like. He was perhaps thinking like we might think, oh, hey, there's a handsome guy. Maybe that's him. He said, no, I, I didn't know who he was. I hadn't met, ever met him except in my mother's womb. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. God himself from heaven attests his Son. In that encounter where Jesus came and the Holy Spirit came upon him that John just spoke of, After Jesus being baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, God has spoken often in the prophets through dreams, through visions, but here he speaks out of heaven. God attesting his Son. Now, there weren't, probably weren't that many people around, but there were enough. And John the Baptist saw it, God attesting his son. We know it occurs again with a few on the Mount of Transfiguration. So if Jesus was a man attested to you by God. In the ministry of John the Baptist, God has borne unique and powerful witness to the person and work of his son, who he is and what he will accomplish. God, the great creator, who is pure light and pure love, has affirmed and has certified his son. When you all think of Jesus, young people, and you go out in that world, and the world's going to tell you, ah, oh, don't believe all that stuff, that's just hokey, that's just this, that, and the other. You need to believe scientists because they really know what's going on in the world. Just make sure you keep up with the scientists because they change their views year by year. 
Who are they but men who will one day die, women who will one day die? The God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who is light and love, the guy who is the God who is righteous and true and holy, the God who cannot lie, has affirmed and certified his son. And the record of that is in the Gospels. There is no higher approval than to have the approval of God. Again, some of you probably still going, "Ah, I just need the approval of someone. I need them to appreciate me. I'm leaning... There'll be a point in your life you'll be old enough you go, not looking for that anymore because you're just not going to get what you think you should. You look for the approval of God. That's the approval that matters. There's no higher rating than to be approved of God. Jesus gets five stars from God in everything, every time, in all that he did, in all that he accomplished. And the question every human being has to answer, the question put before every human being is this, do you value Jesus as much as God values him? Do you? My beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, is that your valuation of Jesus. Now there are other religious leaders that you know you go out there and the compared comparison of religions and of course there's all the so-called world religions. There's Krishna, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, Did God ever say to any one of these, you are my beloved in whom I'm well pleased? Did they ever claim that? You see, all the other religions of the world are human inventions. There is no certification of God in it. There's no attestation of God. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. John the Baptist testified, but then there's the very works that Jesus himself does. The miracles performed by Jesus were the continual affirmation by God of Jesus before the people attested by God to you. Now Peter uses this compound language which was really kind of familiar. Mighty works, wonders, signs. Now there's only a few places where all three occur together but there's many other places where two of them occur together. Three terms, all of which if you look at them sort of give you this sense that here's a mighty work. Well, that's probably beyond what I can do and human beings can do on their own. 
Wonders, well, you know, that's stuff that's going to create awe and amazement. And signs. What Jesus did points to something. Something significant. All of these things are beyond really human capability in the first century. Now, Jesus may have healed some people that today's modern medicine could heal. That's fine, but they didn't have modern medicine back then. And if Jesus were here today, or God was to do a miracle today, where God, or where someone is healed apart from modern medicine, then that might be amazing. There are 37 miracles in the gospel. We could sort of sum these words up as miracle. It's clear that they were just a few examples, a few examples among many. So Jesus doing miracles is part of God's attestation. God attested him in Peter's mind primarily by these things. In Isaiah we read, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Isaiah 35 is a great chapter if you're sort of down and in the dumps, maybe go read Isaiah 35. It's not a very long chapter. It's like eight, ten verses. Full of encouragement. God's not beaten up on the Assyrians. He's encouraging his people. But the Old Testament attestifies that the Messiah is going to be a miracle worker. Isaiah, in his chapter, is describing the coming day of redemption, and these are the things that are going to characterize the coming of Messiah. Blind, see. Deaf, hear. Lame, walk. Mute, shout and sing. In John 7.31, we read sort of the crowds as they're experiencing these miracles. They're saying, when the Christ shall come, will he do more signs than those which this man has done? You see, they were expecting the Messiah was going to come with miracles. Matthew 11, when John the Baptist was having his doubts. Yes, John the Baptist had his doubts. So when you have your doubts, remember you're in good company. But do what John the Baptist did. He said, well, I'm going to go ask Jesus about these doubts. Are you the one? He sent someone to ask Jesus, are you the one who's supposed to come? And Jesus' answer was pretty simple. Go and tell John the things you see and hear. And then he quotes from this passage in Isaiah. And so it's clear from how Jesus treated this very passage that his miracles were signs pointing to who he was and confirming that he is the one John was looking for. When you read Matthew chapter 4, the opening of Jesus' ministry, immediately after his temptation by Satan, he goes in the spirit and power, or the power of the spirit, he does his ministry. And Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, 23 through 25. 
healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread to all Syria, brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. So it's really clear that Jesus, though there's only 37 recorded miracles in the Gospels, they are but samples. He was doing this all over the place, all the time. And of course, we have that memorable passage in John 20 at the end. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John was clear. I've selected some samples for my purposes. There's many others, and later on you read, if we were to write them all down, sort of an exaggeration, but just to show how many there were, even the world couldn't contain the books. By the way, we're one day going to find out what those were, right? We're going to sit down with the Lord, and we're going to find out all the things that were left out of the Gospels because they had a certain amount of space and they had a certain purpose. We're going we're to hear about them all. So there are these mighty works and mighty wonders, and the question becomes, okay, we can sort of generally put them in this pile of miracles. What is a miracle? Again, Peter uses these three words, and these three words are significant. Each one points to something, an aspect, a facet of what a miracle is. And fundamentally, a miracle is real simple. God, the great creator who created all things and who established a natural order and natural processes that sort of work. I mean, he oversees them all the time, but they sort of work through rules and laws that he has built into his creation. Every now and then, God says, you know, I'm going to change some things up for some reasons of my own. In this case, to attest my son and I'm going to interrupt or suspend the normal process of his created order, and I'm going to intervene with my own activity, my own action to perform something for my purposes. That's a miracle. I mean, it's not, not a big deal. God just does something different, and he can, and he does, and he will. Now, atheistic naturalism, that is, people who don't believe in God and just think that the world and the universe just kind of appeared on its own and organized itself on its own, denies miracles. Now, they don't have any reason to deny miracles. Basically, they say this, uh, a miracle requires divine intervention and we're not going to believe in God. So, therefore, miracles aren't true. It's rather brazen, isn't it? For those who say they're so open-minded, it's extremely brazen, particularly in view of all the facts that we know now in the, in the world of science. So do not think that atheists have some rationale for denying miracles, that they've collected evidence that compels them to their atheism, that compels them to deny miracles. It's just their opinion, and that's all it ever was, and that's all it ever will be. There is no scientific evidence that rules God out of this universe. Now, there's plenty of scientists who try to take science and construct a world without God in their philosophy, in their worldview, but that's just their construction. 
And young folks remember that. That's all it is, is their construction. There's not one scientific fact that I have ever encountered and that a lot of other scientists have encountered that rules God out of this universe. Their problem with miracles is not historical. You see, even the radical theologians who want to say that Jesus wasn't God in the end, they will say that historically, as historians, Jesus performed miracles. The problem is not a historical issue. It is a philosophical issue. Do not ever be intimidated by the atheist, no matter how his... He constructs his arguments and makes them warble in his throat like some of the atheists, the the English atheists, they they just sound so authoritative. And uh, so don't, don't be moved by that. They got nothing but opinion. So what is a mighty work? It's a power. Every intervention by God requires power. God comes in and suspends the normal order of creation and he comes with power. What's the first great miracle that you can think of in the Bible? And hint, you don't have to read very far. Creation. Creation is a miracle, isn't it? How much power was there? That's the God whom we love and serve and trust. And again, it just struck me, so I've probably said it before, but there's some, I think he's actually kind of a crackpot scientist, but he had a good saying. Said the atheists, when they try to construct everything and come up with their version of the universe that rules out God, the one thing they've never been able to address or come up with, which they keep saying, I guess, that that's what they're looking for, is, well, how did it all start? What's the origin of all of this? And so they'll talk about a Big Bang, things like that. And this scientist, I think, who's a believer, he, I hope he is anyway, at least, he just said, yep. What the atheist scientist does is he comes and he says, give me one free miracle, creation, and then I'll explain the rest for you. Creation is a miracle. There's another great miracle. Jesus Christ, the eternal son, comes into Mary's womb and becomes the God-man. That's a miracle of miracles. Another miracle is he's raised from the dead. Another miracle is our resurrection. And all of these describe power. The power of the Almighty shall overshadow you. Luke chapter 2. Power is there. Mighty works. The word in the Greek is dunamis, just simply means power. We'll go on from there just for time. There's wonders, things that amaze you. The things that Jesus did, they weren't magic tricks. They weren't card parlor tricks. Jesus healed people. Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus did things that were undeniably at that time far beyond human capability. Blind folks don't normally receive eyesight, but they did when Jesus came. Dead people do not normally rise from the dead through natural processes. They never will. But when Jesus came, people rose from the dead. Wonders. They may stop, make you stop in your tracks and think, or at least should. 
signs, the final aspect of miracles, they point to something. In this case, they confirm Jesus. That's the ultimate point of the miracle. God is certifying his son with things that in that day could not be contravened as God's direct testimony to his son. You might remember that Nicodemus came. He was a Pharisee and he said, Lord, we know that you've come from God as a teacher for no one can do the things, these signs that you do unless God is with him. So you have this group of people These Pharisees, they knew the miracles were real. Signs and wonders that God did through him in your midst. They all knew that what Peter had said was true for that crowd in that historical setting. These historical facts were undeniable. And the final statement is an appeal to conscience. You know that God has approved Jesus. You know his miracles are really in the end undeniable, at least for honest souls. Take these facts to heart, follow your conscience, follow what you know to be true. And that's what we have to do in witnessing. We have to make a hopefully gripping appeal. Now sometimes we get 30 seconds so you can't go through everything. Sometimes we get five minutes. Sometimes people are argumentative. Sometimes people are just eh. Sometimes people really want to know. But make your appeals. Appeal to someone's conscience. Don't just leave your message hanging there. Wrap it up with people. Not everyone had an honest approach to what was historically undeniable. Unbelieving and hostile Pharisees could not deny the miracles, but they could deny the source. So what do they do? Okay, we're not going to say he didn't do miracles because that's really not possible. He's doing them. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it. But this man casts out demons by Beelzebub the ruler of the, of the demons. These miracles don't attest that he's from God. They are from Satan. I mean, think of the irrationality of that. Only God can do the things that Jesus did, and yet they turn around and say, no, we're going to give it a different spin, a different twist. We're going to give you the CNN version of it. the ruler of demons. In the face of hard evidence, they invented irrational arguments, and that is what is going on in the world of science. Again, young folks, when you get out there, realize they are twisting and torquing facts to fit their narrative. Don't just believe everything they say. And by the way, this is the only unpardonable sin. If you've been out there and in Christians, hey, Christians go through it all the time. Satan comes and you've committed the unpardonable sin. Anybody ever have that? Yeah, some people trying to be honest there. This is the unpardonable sin. Hostile people who had no belief in Jesus attributed his works to Satan. There is no other definition but that. So when Satan's trying to pin the tail on the donkey with you and say you've created the unpardonable sin because you went too far in an argument with your husband or your wife or something, just go, well, you know, that was really bad what I did, but it wasn't this. So go get another tail to pin on this donkey because I'm not accepting that one. Just know what it is. 
As you yourselves know, so it is with the skeptic, the atheist, any explanation of the universe will do as long as it does not include God. Any presentation of Jesus will do as long as he's not the son of God. Any explanations of his miracles will do as long as they exclude divine intervention. And that's just an opinion. That's just their opinion because they have no evidence for any of this. Skeptics cannot abide that God's universe, that this is God's universe, no matter how much evidence is presented. An impossibly fine-tuned universe, not good enough for them. An impossibly complex information-based biology, DNA, not good enough for them. The historical reliability of the Gospels, which can be demonstrated historically and without any doubt, they just shrug it off. The legitimacy of miracles, Jesus was clearly a miracle worker, they'll just simply deny it. Skeptics come in many flavors, patterns, and colors become familiar with some good counter answers if you're going to be a good witness for Jesus. Remember that most people are skeptics because they just heard it somewhere. They don't have any really reason to believe it. They just heard it and for some reason adopted it. It felt good to them. This is part of witnessing in the 21st century. You know, 100 years ago, maybe 150 years ago, you didn't have to talk about about science. Now you've got to know a little bit of something, at least have confidence to say, yeah, evolution probably doesn't have a lot of factuality about it. Yeah, the universe kind of couldn't have come into being like it is on its own. God has saved many a skeptic through plain and honest witness. And in the end, we may not have all the answers to all their detailed questions, but we can have confidence in the basic answers and we trust ultimately in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is verse 22, Peter's opening dialogue or opening presentation to the Jews. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and Lord, again, we just praise your great name. Lord, thank you for all the Christians in the world that work hard at enabling us to have answers for the people we encounter, the people we witness to, the people we dialogue with. Lord, thank you for men like Sean McDowell, men like Warner Wallace. Lord, just pray that we would avail ourselves of those things that are just far beyond our own personal reach to research. And we'll spend the time to know that if we're going to be good witnesses in the 21st century in an American culture, then some of these things we need to at least be familiar with and think through what our answer is going to be when we're confronted with this or that. So at the end, Lord, we can just move past those things quickly and get to Jesus, the one you've approved, the Jesus who worked miracles. And in each of our lives here, he's worked that that great miracle, we've been born again. We've had the power of sin broken in our lives, and we've become the sons and daughters of God. 
and you've put in our hearts hope and joy and peace, um, things that really matter. And Lord Jesus, we just want to have a recognition of you and a regard for you that the Father has. Lord, put that in our hearts always. And we will always see you as the one whom the Father loves because you're, you're righteous, you're holy, you're true. You are the eternal Son. You are the Son of God's love. And Lord, let that, always, that spirit always be in our minds and hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.